passage uh, in an Old Testament book um, called Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, and it was written by the prophet Moses. And there's this, there's this amazing passage about Moses in this section of Scripture where Moses basically is fleeing for his life. And he had just killed a man. He just murdered somebody. So he's guilty. He's not a good guy at this point. And he's, he's uh, hoofing it out of Egypt out of fear for his own life. And in his escape in the wilderness, he meets the priest of Midian. And basically, um, they, they develop a friendship. He becomes a shepherd for him. And he ends up marrying his daughter, um, the priest of Midian's daughter, and becomes a shepherd, as I said. Um, well, one day, Moses is tending his flock, the priest of Midian's flock, and he sees this remarkable sight off in a distance. It was a bush that was on fire but not consumed. And most of us probably know about this story, maybe a little bit, even if you're not like from a church background. No doubt you've heard of the burning bush story, right? More, more accurately, it should be called the not burning bush that was burning story, but that doesn't really go as well. But um, Moses sees this bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And he approaches um, where the bush is. It's on the Mount of Horeb. The scriptures call it the mountain of God. And he's basically visited by this, this figure called the angel of the Lord. Now, if you don't know much about scripture, you might just think that this is just some angel. We've all heard of angels. So the Bible is just showing Moses some angel and giving him a message. But the angel of the Lord in scripture is a very specific person. And that basis, just, just so I can be quick about it with you, is that person is Jesus Christ. Um, before Christ took on flesh and became a man, he, was the, he is the second person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that Jesus is the Word made flesh. In other words, he reveals to us who God is. Because God is so distant and so powerful and transcendent, Jesus Christ's job is to make him known to us. So this angel of the Lord appears to Moses. Basically, God is appearing to Moses. And in this scene, we, we're dealt with this contrast that you really just can't get around, and it's rather exciting. Because we see this contrast where Moses is visited by this angel. It's clearly God revealing himself to us, to him, rather. And he desires to be close to this bush, so he starts approaching it. He wants to be near, close to Yahweh. But when he gets near enough, when he gets within arm's reach, God stops him and he says, take off your sandals for the ground that you stand on is holy. And Moses does something very interesting. He listens, which is a good idea when, you're, when God's talking to you to listen to him, right? But So Moses takes off his sandals, but then he does something else. He hides his face in the presence of God. He realizes who he's with and who he is. See, Moses knows quite clearly who he, Moses, is and who God is. He realizes the holiness and majesty and wonder that is God and simultaneously recognizes the fallenness, the dirtiness, the unworthiness that is Moses. So he hides his face. He wants to be close. He longs to be close, but he's afraid to be close. He's on holy ground. He wants to be close to God, but he's afraid to be close to God. I don't know that there's a better way to describe what it means to be a Christian than that. Being a Christian means that there's nothing else larger that we want in life than, than to be near to God 
but at the same time we realize just how undeserving we are of being with him. So we need a solution. We need a verdict. We need God to take off our shoes so that we could be made holy. Very interesting. I think that you know that you're becoming a Christian when you start sensing this reality, how wonderful and awesome and majestic God is, and how far short we fall. See, that's, you're on your way to becoming a Christian when you start realizing that. How many people have ever read the book Frankenstein by Mary Shelley? Wonderful book. Maybe my favorite book of all time that I've ever read. It's fantastic. It's, and it's short, too. Maybe that's why I like it. Um, so ma many people think Frankenstein is the monster, but he's not the monster. Frankenstein is the doctor, but really, who is the monster? That's the trick of the book, right? Dr. Frankenstein creates a monster so hideous, so outrageous, um, no one can bear to be in this thing's presence. It's tall, it's big, it's grotesque, and it has life. It's the walking dead, so to speak. Now, one scene reveals this monster. He had been shunned from society. No one could even tolerate him. Not even his maker could look at him. So he runs away. Off into the woods he goes, rejected and scorned by society. And in the woods, he stumbles across this, this little home, this family of people, a blind man, a daughter, a son. Several people live in this home. And while he's looking at him, them from the woods, he's watching them live their lives every day, he starts falling in love with them. He starts long, longing to be a part of their family, for them to love him the way that he loves them. He starts doing little chores for them without them knowing he's there. He starts to desperately want to introduce himself, but he's afraid. What will they do when they see me? And one part in the book, um, Frankenstein's monster says, my heart yearns to be known and loved by these amiable creatures to see their sweet looks directed to me with affection. That was the utmost limit of my ambition. Oh, I could just, if that were my attitude toward God every day, how my life would be changed. To see his sweet look directed to me with affection. That that and that only would be my ambition. I dared not think that they would turn them from me with disdain and horror. So one day, he's longing for this. This monster just desires to be looked at with this sort of affection from this family. He, just, he hatches up a, a plan to go introduce himself to the blind man first. He's thinking he won't see me if I can win his heart and then escape. And he can tell the rest of the family that how good I am, that I'm kind, that I'm not a monster. So it says, my heart beat quick. This was the hour and moment of trial which would decide my hopes or realize my fears. When I stand in front of what I love most, what will they do? What will they say? Will they accept him or will they reject him well i'm going to have to let you read the book to figure out what happens because this isn't about this isn't about that okay um it's not good though i'll give you a hint um <laughs> now that's the question right of in that's the insecurity that every single romantic heart has you start falling in love with somebody 
You start seeing someone from a distance, admiring them. Your heart develops an affection for them. You start to love them. You want them to be a part of your life. But do they share it? If they really knew me, if they were to see me, warts and all, how would they react? What would they say? How would they treat me? Every single person, I think, in this room is concerned about just that. When you start to really care for someone, and you want, that, and you want yourself to be a special part of their life, an intimate, not just a face, but an intimate part of your life, will you be rejected or will you be accepted? Now, this song that we're getting into is about more than marriage, and it's about more than love. And if you walk away from these sermons just wanting to be in love with somebody more, then I feel like I haven't done my job. Because this, this book is about love, and it's about marriage, but it's about more than that. It's called the Song of Songs, the best of songs. And the, the best of songs is not a guy meets a girl and they live happily ever after. That's wonderful. But the best of songs is that the creator is reconciled to his creation and loves them for all eternity. That's the best of songs. When we approach this, you shouldn't desire the love of a man or a woman. You should desire the love of God in heaven. You see, friends, that's what I want to move you towards. That's why I'm approaching this book, and I approach it recognizing that we're going to kill two birds with one stone. We're going to talk about marriages. We're going to talk about human love and relationships. But, oh, don't miss the greater picture. The bigger picture is the love of God for us. What would God do if the veil was lifted and we stood in his presence? How would he treat us? When we see his beauty and his splendor and when we approach him, he sees us. What, what will the verdict be? Someone so lovely, so marvelous, so wonderful as God himself. We have to approach. That bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. I have to draw near to this God, this creator, this majestic king of all things. I have to be near him, but I know I can't be. I know that I shouldn't be. So we have in our text this morning a sample, a microcosm, if you will, of this insecure and hesitant approach. Here's this girl that is about to step on holy ground. She wants marriage with the king. What will he do? What will he say when she lifts the veil? Desire, hesitation, affirmation. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Her desire, her hesitation, and his affirmation. Let's talk about it. Okay. Imagine the scene again with me. Here's a, probably what is a teenage girl. So moms, if you have like 15-year-old girls near you, back then they would have likely been married soon. Scary, right? Okay, let's get ready. Um, a teenage girl is engaged to be married. That's the setting of the Song of Solomon. Most of the, uh, some of, some of the, the poem is written as two people communicating their affection to, we, to each other as betrothed. They're not married yet. Then they're married, and then, then the rest of the poem is sort of a window into the early uh, moments of their, of their marriage. So it's the ancient Near East. The bride, the bride price has been paid. And the couple is eager to join in marriage. That's the scene. The early chapters, like I said, of the song, they give us a window into the hearts and the passion and love that's being exchanged between these two prior to the wedding. 
Um, now, the song, if you, re- if you recall at the beginning verse, it seems to have written, be, been written by, this, by Solomon, uh, King Solomon, which was the, the son of, you know, David. Um, but it likely, actually, when you, when you research this, it likely was not written by Solomon. It was, um, it was likely more written sort of in his honor because Solomon was known to be a writer of songs. Okay? It's called The Greatest Songs of Songs. So we could more think of it like the greatest of songs even as compared to the most majestic of songs written by Solomon himself. But but I want you to just kind of pause with me a second because when you think about this being, even even if he didn't write it, his name being associated with this book sort of ruins the whole thing. Because if you know anything about Solomon, you know that he was not married to one woman. He was married to 700 women. And he had 300 concubines. Solomon is not a picture of marital fidelity and faithfulness, of lifelong love to one woman. So it's sort of curious why Solomon would, why his name would be attached to this book. But what I think is happening here is that the song isn't so much speaking about Solomon's mistakes but it's setting him in contrast. We all know the darkness of his life. What should the light have looked like? What should it have been? What's the image of marriage that God has for us, the vision of being married to each other? Now, as you read this, you'll, you'll identify, if you go through the whole poem, you'll identify with a lot of it, but you'll know that you'll note that near the end of the poem, it isn't all happy. There's some trouble that they have in their relationship. But at at the end of the day, it's a pretty good picture of what a healthy marriage looks like, and I think that's the point. Solomon was a train wreck, but he didn't have to be. There's an image, there's a vision of marriage that God puts out to us in Scripture that is, it's, it's right there. We can grab a hold of it if we want to. So it's not so much speaking about Solomon's mistakes, but it's developing a divine vision for marriage, what it is. And you know that vision rubs up against our culture and what our culture says. All of our misconceptions and perversions about what love is, about what sex is, about what marriage is, all of these different things. The Bible sort of rubs up against it and says, here's what it should look like. So the song clearly introduces themes of um, raw sexuality, of love, of romance, of marriage. It's very honest. Um, But this desire and this passion needs to be read in the context of the covenant of marriage. These aren't two just lusty young people satisfying their raw desires. It's part of that. They have a desire, which we'll get into a moment. But it's always bridled in the context of marriage. You can't help but observe that as much as they long for each other, As we read this, it'll become obvious. Wasn't it even a little bit obvious this morning? They long for each other, both spiritual ways and physical ways, but they do not and will not act on that desire until they are married. And the Bible makes that very clear as it goes along. Because marriage is the only context in Scripture that sexuality is safe. Where it's safe to be naked is in the context of marriage. It should be, I should say. 
And that's the context here. As a matter of fact, the Bible is about this. The Bible from start to finish is about, or it teaches, that intimacy, union, requires covenant. You can, in the Bible, you cannot have union without covenant. Our union with God, all throughout Scripture, there are, I have books about this on my, on my shelves, about covenants in Scripture. The old, some people say that the, all the Bible is about is about a covenant, right? And so you say, the well, good question is, well, what's a covenant? A covenant is a legally binding promise of the exclusive and mutual exchange of united love. It's the most intimate sort of union that you can possess with another human being so that you become one with them, so that in human relationships, the Bible says it is so important and so wonderful and so mysterious that it's called a covenant. You see, our relationship with God is the same. It requires a covenant, and a covenant is a legally binding process of the exclusive, exclusive and mutual exchange of love. And covenants in Scripture, if you break them, something dies. If you break a covenant in the Bible, something dies. And the reason for it is because your life now depends on the union that you had with that thing. So when you break it, something dies. And how many people in here who have ever been through a divorce know that when it happened, something died? You might have a hard time explaining what that something was, but you know in your gut something died. Something happened that shouldn't have happened. I'm not saying that to guilt anyone or to shame anyone because some, the Bible even allows for it from time to time, but it doesn't happen without consequence. You see, friends, when you break a covenant with something, die, something dies. And what happened when we broke our covenant with God? Jesus died. You see, our covenant breaking, God doesn't just say, well, I forgive you, come on in. Something had to die for God to forgive us. Someone had to die, and that someone was Jesus Christ. He refused to leave you afar off. So he sacrificed his son to bring you back. Union with God requires a covenant, and union and marriage requires a covenant. A covenant basically says this, you're the only person that I will die for, and the one thing I bind myself to exclusively and absolutely. Isn't that great? But something happens here. They're about to be married. They're about to enter into the covenant of marriage. And we get this window into this sort of preliminary desire that they have for each other. So that's what I want to begin with, desire. In verses 1 through 4, we're introduced to a very raw and a very honest display of desire. That This bride is gaga over this guy. Okay? She is so in love with him. She desires to kiss him. She desires to smell him, his scents, right? She desires his name. We'll get to that in a second. She wants to be around him. She, where is he? How do I find you? Remember all this? She wants his affection. She's daydreaming about all his qualities that she so admires. Friends, do you daydream about the Lord? Do you think about his wonderful works? 
Do you think about his love for you? Are you reminded of his strength, of his creation, of his knowledge? I hope so. Here's this woman daydreaming about this man. They're not yet married, but we have an image of the bride's longing for him in marriage. Um, it's not unbridled, and it's not hidden. People see her passion. If you recall in the, in the, in the text, other women were seeing how much she, she were, they were affirming, it's good that you love him. He's worth loving, right? He's a good guy. And we kind of have this kind of picture of what, what it should look like for us before we're getting married. Do people that love us and know us, that love Christ and know Christ, are they sort of affirming us in the relationship? Are they saying, yes, this is a good guy? We'll get to that more in a second. She says, kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. Okay, this is not, we, remember in Peter, greet each other with a holy kiss? This is not a holy kiss. Okay? <laughs> kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. Um, she's being very clear. Because in the ancient Near East, there were, there, was, there were a lot of plutonic kisses going around. Cheek kissing, Eskimo kissing, friendship types of things. It wasn't sexual, it was just a greeting. It was friendship, right? So this lady, she wants to be crystal clear. I want you to take your mouth and kiss me on my mouth, okay? I don't want a Bible study, <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't want a friend. I see you as a friend. You're such a, no, that's not what she wants. She wants a lover. She wants to be married to this man. She wants his kiss, his embrace, his love. She wants to be carried across the threshold. Take me into your room, it says. Now, the real word in Hebrew is a lot spicier than that. It's your bedroom. That's pretty forward, right? Isn't that forward? That's, it, it's, in, it's not the image of the, the traditional Christian woman that you hear about in you know, American Christianity. This, this woman is clear about what she wants. So for a few verses into this book, we can sort of see why, I don't know if you knew this, but um, the ancient Jews told men 30 years and under, 30 years and un under not even to read it. <laughs> and this is one of the, the reasons why. One author said that this book is about desire. Stirred, desire. Frustrated, desire. Satisfied, desire. Frustrated again, and desire above all, but above all else, it is about desire. These people love each other. They want to be with each other. And we all know how true it is, I think, that this, this you see, passion is good. Passion is God-given, but passion can become sinful. Passion can become misdirected. Passion can become premature. Passion can want to be fulfilled without the covenant. See? And that's where we go wrong, and that's the lie of Satan. But it is passion in and of itself is wonderful, and it is God-given. Now, you might read this, and you, you might think, that these are just two immature teenagers, right? They can't control themselves. But I don't want you to miss something that is incredibly crucial, because verse 3 tells us that she desires his name. The king's name is like oil poured out to me. Now, this is incredibly important, because this makes it very clear that this is not just about how he looks. 
or what it feels like to have his arm around me. This is, about, this is not a physical infatuation. This isn't a GQ model that she's Googling over, okay? And it's, and it's also, by the way, it's not a desperate escape from loneliness. She wants his name. She wants to be identified with him. You see, names in the ancient Near East were very significant. For her, he wasn't just a good kisser. He didn't just smell nice, right? And he wasn't a solution to loneliness. It was his character, his person that mattered to her. All over scripture, do you know that when people come to faith in God, do you know what God changes right away? Their name. They cha he changes their name so that it's associated with him now. We sort of still do this in our culture, although it's starting to disappear a little bit. But normally, traditionally, a woman will change her name to the man's name because she's changing identity from one family to another. See, it's kind of like this. We're in, going in the right direction if we start seeing this like this. All over Scripture, when men come to faith in Yahweh, he changes their name. He gives them a new name. When Moses asks to see God on Mount Sinai. You know what God says to Moses? I will tell you my name. Isn't that interesting? Like, I wanted more than that. Your name, that seems kind of boring. I wanted some kind of like supernatural display. I wanted to see a fireball or something. But he said, I'm going to tell you who I am, in other words. Because who you are is the most important thing about you. What, what do you value? What do you believe in? What do you like? What's your character? You see, if you don't understand God, if you think God is a villain rather than a hero, then you have it all messed up. You'll never want him. You see? How many people have ever met a very attractive person and then you started talking? They started talking and it's just not worth it. <laughs> so you find someone else, right? Something happened, but, but you know, like, you know what they value. You know how they think, who they are. Verse, verse 3 tells us that the king's name is like oil. It anoints me. It identifies me. It changes me. So when Moses asks to see God, God responds by re revealing to Moses his name. On a human level, the name a Christian is to look for in a marital partner is Christ. You see? That is, they identify themselves with Jesus Christ. It means that they see Christ's death and resurrection. This and this alone is what writes everything wrong with them and everything wrong with the world that they live in. You see, the Bible even tells us, marry whom you desire to Christians, marry whom you desire, but in the Lord. The name we seek in uniting to a spouse is the name that we have found in our new nature with God himself. Because he, when we come to faith in God, he makes us new. He gives us a new name. He makes us different. He cleanses us. He forgives us our sin. He declares us holy. We are now wed to him. We belong to him. You see, friends, so such is the same in human marriage. If you seek a man or woman's name and not the name of Christ in them, then you will have inadvertently 
made that person your Lord. You see, if you don't seek the name of Christ in the person, but that doesn't matter to you and you're just seeking them, then you have inadvertently wanted to be associated with their name and not the Lord's name. See? Remember what I just said? Paul says, marry whom you desire, but only in the Lord. In other words, their name, how they identify themselves, who they claim to worship and follow, who their Lord and Savior is, must be the name of Christ and not anything else and not you. That shouldn't be you. And here's why. If you marry somebody who doesn't share the name Christ, you cannot open the veil. You see, you cannot reveal to them who you really are. You're either going to have to demote Jesus or you're going to have to demote your spouse. Let me explain to you what I mean. Your spouse will never really be able to see you naked spiritually. You could try, but they're going to either laugh at you or yawn. They're not going to get it. So you're going to have to hide something. The most important thing about you, you're going to have to sort of put it backwards. Or you're going to have to demote Christ. Christ is going to have to become less important to you. Not, only, like, not just hide it from your spouse, but he's going to have to become, Jesus might have to become less important. doesn't mean that he has to, but oftentimes that's what happens because, because you reveal Christ so much in the way that you live your life and it's, and it's met with so much scorn, you start to feel, you know, it's just not worth it anymore. Right? I'm not saying for you this morning that if you might have married somebody that does not know Jesus, that you can't have a happy marriage and that you can't have a great marriage. You can. But it's incomplete. It falls short. And if you're dating or considering uh, marrying someone who doesn't know Jesus, could I suggest to you, you might, you might be already beginning to demote Jesus in your life. You might, you might have started already to take his name off of you and put that person's name on you. You know, this also has, has implications for marriage itself, even between two Christians. You know that in marriage, it's very easy to start thinking that what you need, what saves you, is your wife's affection and love and affirmation. And when you don't get it, it brings you to the gutter. You see, friends, our spouses are servants of the greater spouse. And if we don't look to God for our affirmation and applause, and we're looking to our spouse for it, we're going to start hating our spouse because they can never applaud loud enough. They can never really see us truly how God sees us. You see, so we got to go to him first to get that. The highest principle, whether you're married, single, or divorced, is the immersion and application of the name of all names. Is God's name on you? Is it running down you like an oil? You see, or do you want to be identified with everything but him? You see, that's what it means, I think, to have God's name on you like an oil. This, girl, this girl's desire isn't just earthly or physical or sensual. She desires his name, but she hesitates. She pauses. Moses puts his eyes away from God. And don't we do that? Verses 5 through 7, she starts to reveal her insecurity about her class, her dark skin. My skin is dark. You know, friends, before we 
make the wrong conclusion. This was not about race. This was not about nationality. This was about class. You see, her skin was dark because she was poor. She worked outside in the fields. She labored day and night in the fields. Why would a king marry a peasant? Why would a king betroth himself to someone impoverished? Don't look at me on my dark skin. It's coarse and rough, she says. This girl's brother, that her brothers force her to work. Her skin becomes dark and, and coarse. She's sort of a Cinderella, right? It seems like her fa- family's kind of bullies making her, making her work. She's too busy caring for her family's needs, you recall in the text, that she can't even care for her own complexion, her own appearance. Can, you, can, you get, can I hear an amen, friends? Isn't that true at times? And we start to feel guilt and shame because of the way that we look because we're so busy caring for other people. What will they think? And our culture feeds into this big time. Your hair's too curly. It's too straight. Like, which is it? What do you want already? Right? Your body's too big or it's too small. Which is it? It's never good enough. You know, this year it's big as in. Ten years from now, small as in. You just can't win. Right? There's always some feature out of whack. It's made us so insecure that we can't even look ourselves in a mirror. We can't even look at ourselves in a picture. We can't even hear the sound of our own voice. My, my wife was listening to my sermon this morning when I got out of my room, and you know what I muttered under my breath? Oh, no. I don't want to hear me. <laughs> I'll never preach again. Right? We're so insecure. Our culture does this to us. It, it makes us so paranoid, and it holds us hostage. Our ladies are held hostage by the images that our culture brings into their minds. Even the prettiest aren't pretty enough. they got to be airbrushed and photoshopped. The most beautiful women on earth, you can't even just take a picture of them. they got to be fixed, right? And this girl carries this, these insecurities, and in one translation, I think it says it better than the one we got, than the one that was read to you. It says, tell me, my love, where are you leading your flock? Where will you rest your sheep at noon? For why should I remain bailed in front of you? She wants to take the thing that she is so insecure about and show it to him. Oh, that, that is courage. We don't do that when we date. We hide that stuff. We don't want them to see the bag of toenails in our closets. We hide that. Those ugly things about us, you know? If we're too loose with our bodily airs, right? We don't do that when we're married, when we're dating, right? It's just true. We want to hide all the things that we think are ugly. But this woman, before she's married, she says, let me show you who I really am. Do you love, do you really love me? You see, she wants to be, she wants to really be in his presence, not pretends to be in his presence. That's what's happening here. But she hesitates. She's worried. How is he going to react? What's he going to feel about me? And friends, we approach our God with the same wonder and the same insecurity. And we need to put our self-worth, our self-identity in his hands. And we need to trust him and not hide from him. We're afraid to do this because we think that if we lift the veil, 
that he's going to laugh at us, that he's going to yawn, or maybe he'll be angry, grossed out, away from me. When we take our whole selves, body, soul, and spirit, to God through Christ, that's when we trust Christ to clean us, to take away our impurities, to remove the sandals from our feet, to make us. He sees us in our sin, but then he dresses us in his righteousness and loves us anyway. And we're going to see the king doing that for this woman in but a moment, okay? When Christ, when we trust Christ to clean us, all of our impurities are gone. All of our sin is removed. He takes off the sandals from our feet. He wipes away our sin. He cleans us, clothes us in his righteousness, and marries us. Isn't that incredible? And that's what we get from God. That's what this woman gets. Affirmation. They're a little behind back there. That's okay. Desire. What was the second one? Hesitation. Affirmation. The affirmation of the king. What is... Okay. If you got arrested for a crime, what does it matter what people around you say as far as how long you'll get in prison? It doesn't. It matters what the judge says. It matters what the king, we can think of the king because kings were judges in this, in this day and age. What matters is not what society thinks. It's not even what you think. It's the verdict from the king that matters. And our job is to start believing that verdict. What do we believe? Now let's talk about this. This is probably the most important part. She's afraid. She's concerned. I'm lifting the veil. He's, I'm going to be in his presence. What, what's he going to say? We get a window into his words. He calls her beautiful, the most beautiful among women. He calls her a horse, but we'll give him that. Probably months... <laughs> <laughs> it probably meant something nice back then. Um, he gives her directions to find him. Follow this path and you'll find me. He praises all her features, her neck, her cheeks, her, uh, everything. He speaks directly to her insecurities. He reverses all of the negative verdicts that she's heard throughout her life. He reverses them. You think this, here's what I think. Here's the truth about you. You're not even a sinner because I'm removing it. You see that? Wow. He's dressing her up. He refuses, excuse me, he reverses with his words all the negative verdicts that she's put on herself, that others have put on her, and he says something different. He announces something, the truth. And not only does he announce this, but he starts to dress her up. She says, my skin, is, my, my skin is coarse, the complexion's dark, and, you know, like, will he love me? Will he appreciate me? Not only do I love you, but I'm going to dress you up in golden earrings. You know what he's doing here? You might miss this in the text, but back then in the ancient Near East, these were wedding clothes. Most people didn't just walk around with golden necklaces and golden bracelets back then like we sort of do now. You see, th this was wedding gear. This was the white gown. Here's what I'm going to, not only do I love you, not only do I think you're beautiful, but I'm going to clothe you in wedding clothes. You see, the image for us today in our relationship with God is that God clothes us. When we come to him by faith, he clothes us with his wedding clothes. 
You see, he puts a white dress on us, a white robe on us more specifically. And you know what that is? That's his forgiveness. That's all the infirmities. That's all the insecurities, all the things that we've done wrong. I mean, for valid reasons, not just made up. All the ways that we've insulted him. He washes them away. He accepts us and clothes us with wedding clothes and betrothes himself to us. So when we approach him in all of our sin, he says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to clean you. And I'm going to put a ring on your finger. That's how he receives you. Isn't that incredible? doesn't matter what you've done. You see, Jesus said to the, the woman caught in adultery, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Be wed to me, in other words. That's what that means theologically, that we are not condemned by God. If you're not condemned by God as a human being, it means you're his bride. He says, will you marry me? Go and sin no more to this woman who did not deserve that from the Savior. But that's what she got because she was in the presence of the king. Come to him. Be affirmed by him. You see, friends, you, we don't deserve to be in his presence. When we, take, when we take it all off, when we bear it all, he should reject us and turn us away because he's holy. But, be, but because he's gracious and loving, he satisfies his holiness by putting everything that we deserved on Christ and giving us his clothes. Dresses, up, dresses us with his perfections and his righteousness. Isn't that good news? You see, that's why the Bible calls the gospel the good news. <clears throat> you know that in marriage, you can reverse as a husband or a wife all of the neg negative verdicts that have been put on your spouse. You can reverse them. That's the power that God gives to us in human relationships. How much more so when we come to him? Oh, he has the power to reverse the self-talk, the self-judgments, all the things that we've come to believe about ourselves, that we're ugly or fat or we're losers, we're failures, we're lazy, we're rude. Fill in the blanks. Some story that you believed about yourself. Oh, friends, if you lift the veil to the king, what will he say? I hope that you'll find that he'll clean you, that he'll forgive you, that he'll prepare for you an unending union, that that's what's waiting for you if you simply are willing to have the courage to approach him, to be in his presence. I want to uh, close um, with um, a quote from a book I'm using right now to research this. He says, By the grace of God, we discover that his name is oil poured out, and his cross is the fragrance of salvation. We're made beautiful with his kisses, yet we hesitate because we know our lives are darkened by sin. But God's affirmation to us is the gospel, which declares that Jesus loves us, gave himself up for us. This romance is the ultimate reality. Amen? So you're single, you're married, you're divorced, you're happy or bitter or everything in between. Look for the name of Christ on a person before you look for the person. 
wear the name of Christ as a priority in all of your relationships. Seek that name in others first. Affirm each other. Reverse insecurities with your words. You can even do this with your friends. Channel your desire toward marriage or in marriage, not outside of it or not behind a computer screen. And fifth, most importantly, approach the Lord. Be in his presence, bare, exposed, vulnerable, before you're in anyone else's presence like that. Amen? He longs for you. Imagine the king of kings speaking to you like this, God in heaven. I've sort of kind of adapted the scripture text from this morning. Imagine him saying this to you. If you don't know, I think that you are the most lovely of all the created things that I've created. You can find me. Follow this trail, and you'll find me. And when you find me, I'll dress you up in dazzling wedding clothes. I desire to be with you because you're as exciting as an army of horses, as the king's procession. You're dazzling to me. I'll dress you up. I'll forgive your sin. And I'll be united to you forever and ever, world without end. Oh, wow. If you don't know Christ, will you come to him? If you do know Christ, would you renew your first love? Would you love him every day? Would you romance your maker and be romanced by him? Love him in prayer? Love him at church? Love him in singing? Love him in every word from your mouth? Love him in your friendships? Love him when you're cleaning the the, the dishes? Don't just show up to church every now and then. Romance the king every day. Let's pray.